Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams is your hub for teamwork in Office 365. With so much to look after, wouldn't it be great if there was just one place to look? Teams is that single workspace where you can work, share, and connect with the people in your work life. Teams brings together your chats, meetings, files, and apps all in one place. Take teamwork where you work with apps for mobile and desktop. So whether you're sprinting towards a deadline or sharing your next big idea, Teams can help you and your team achieve even more. Microsoft Teams in Office 365. Visit office.com slash teams to learn more. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Yahoo. You know what time it is. It is bracket time, and there is no wrong way to pick teams if you use the Yahoo Sports Tourney Pick'em all through the Yahoo Fantasy app. Join a public group or create a group with your friends or join Draymond Green's group for a shot at $25,000. Don't miss out on March Madness. Get your bracket in before the games tip off on March 15th. Build your own bracket now at yahoo.com slash tourney2018. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, it's that time of year when he becomes a Villanova fan. It's Andy <laughs> okay. Greenwald. You wanted to go sports today with I the intro. I feel like every, every like March when they're good, you'll, you'll be hitting me up and you're like, so Nova, Philly team or no? <laughs> no, well, listen, people need to know this. Like, You're Nova Jace. Deep origin story. Where did we hang out for the first time? Rosemont. The Villanova Diner. Yeah, and outside of your place of business at Borders. My place of business? Yeah, I, was like, you were, I was selling Lucy's. You didn't Lucy's. work at Borders. No. You just were selling Lucy's in selling, the magazine aisles. I was selling Lucy's at Galifty's next door. Greenwald, happy Monday. Uh, I just flew in from Austin, Texas. I'm, I'm a little bit punchy. I love it. Uh, I was there for South by Southwest. Thank you to everybody who came up and had lovely things to say about The Ringer, about our podcast. This is The Watch on The Ringer Podcast Network. Mm. Always cool hanging out in Austin. I had one bummer day. Where, like, I'm, you know, because you're in Texas, you really want to eat, right? Yeah. As a, as a person who like, frequently appears on House of Carbs, you know about this. You really want to eat, right? But I had, like, a schedule that one, this one day where, yeah. like, I just didn't have time for a meal, you know? Or Whoa. the people I was hanging out with were going to have meals without me. That seems <laughs> to be more what you're is, saying. Which is, it's just a tough beat for me. So on Saturday, of all the things you can eat in Texas, yeah. I had uh, a bag of peanuts and M&M's and then a pizza from Schlotzky's before I saw a Danny McBride movie. That is <laughs> dire. Yeah, it was it was brutal. The lonely margarita pizza I had on Saturday night was a little bit of a letdown, but I had a lot of fun in Texas and I've had a lot of fun watching Atlanta this season. Nice segue. Did you mention we're going to be talking about our new uh, mini binge watch? We're going to be doing Collateral? I was waiting for you to do it. We're doing that. We're going to be talking about episode one. Episode one today, episode two Thursday, three next Monday, four next Thursday. Uh, We've been in, you know, we love that show. And we can't wait to talk about that episode. I wanted to talk a little bit about Atlanta, though. Obviously, we have sort of sung its praises. We've talked about its ability to maintain... it's energy mm-hmm. in the second season. Mm-hmm. Often what happens in second seasons is uh, you, you just like gain a little weight. You know, you just add characters. You add unnecessary plot lines. The freshman kind of like, 15. Yeah. And you just kind of pump year. your brakes a little bit about the mm-hmm. with the sort of propulsion and momentum that shows typically have. But Atlanta remains really sharp and really surprising from week to week. This last episode, the one that aired on Thursday, dealt largely, I, I guess, largely with the music industry mm-hmm. and the state of the music industry. Um and uh, Paperboy and Earn stopped by this, I guess, Spotify-esque company. Yeah. Um, and there's like, 
this idea of their relationship and what they have to go through to just do the things that they want to be doing, which I think everybody can relate to. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more generally about Atlanta first before we get into the music industry part of it? Because there was something I, I wanted to talk about a little bit with that stuff. Sure, yeah, and I, I, I agree. I mean, I love this episode. I love this season. I think that it is remarkable how much better this show is than just about everything else out right now. It feels completely alive. And you should be listening to the recapables by by the way. Right, for every which has a new episode, podcast episode up after every episode yes. of Atlanta. Hosted by Amanda. Um this show is is, you know, I I, I, I there are plenty of adjectives one could use. It, it it's vibrant, it's emotional, it's just present. And I've been thinking a lot about um how much it stands out and why. And I think that one interesting thing about TV that we don't give enough attention to um, over the last few years is that for much of its existence, TV was a really ephemeral of the moment entity, right? Like you couldn't see old episodes mm-hmm. unless you had um, VHS tapes sure. lined up or laser discs or what have you. Or, or the, hung around the, the show reruns. had to hit this magical 100 episodes to get to syndication. To get into syndication. Yeah. And even then, you know, so basically what we were dealing with was um, something with the immediacy of a newspaper. And we would read the, we would see the hits, we'd see what we liked, and we would move on. Yeah. Um, the golden age, such as it was, that I think we all agreed, you know, I don't know the exact years, but whether it was 99 to 09 or something in there that produced a lot of these episodes that we, we love and we revere and really fueled the growth in the industry has had a very long tail. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how a lot of the shows that we talk about, uh, especially this year, which we've agreed has sort of been a B minus year, um, they're not only competing against the other shows on right now, they're competing against all the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ozark, which I'm sorry to bring up again, but uh, I know you love it. Bring up as much as you want, yeah. I wonder if Ozark would be received differently if you couldn't just, you know, toggle on your Apple TV or what have you and go to Breaking Bad. Do you get what I mean? Like all these shows exist in a continuum. If if, if there was a feeling like if once a show went on, it basically went away unless you bought the DVD box set for it. If it was out of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. If you didn't always have the choice of revisiting or comparing or considering it. Yeah, and I also think that television as a serious pop culture study has become more of a – it's more of a popular thing to do is to – Oh, you gotta go back and watch the show. You gotta go back and yes. watch the show, and so, it's available, so you do it, and you get you and, and so obviously binge watch. Yeah, and obviously this has affected the ratings of things because you can watch every show that's an exist. Every show that's new is in competition with every show ever, right. which is a whole thing. But I'm I'm just wondering about the way we consider it, which is if it used to be a newspaper, now it's more like a book on a bookshelf or in a library with all the books around it. Yeah, and having a conversation with them. That is a big, bigger picture thing I've been thinking about as to why maybe we've been dinging some shows even without even realizing it, why we are considering them as lesser when maybe we would have been feeling – maybe some of these shows that we've been dinging to some degree would have felt fresher or at least untethered from this long tail of history that we've been enjoying, this golden age, this golden run of TV. But also because Atlanta stands out even despite that connection. So there's two things I think it, Atlanta it, has going for it in that regard, yeah. right? So. Uh, we have been talking about those golden age shows that you mentioned that that period of time and beyond that through, I think, I think it ends with, let's just say it ends with Mad Men, right? Like for the sake of conversation, yes, even though I, I don't know if television was as good no, but during that, the end of Mad Men, but like, let's, we can put it there. I think that's right. But we don't really frequently, I, I personally don't frequently go back to watch hour long dramas. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that I've done a, a like light rewatching of the wire and Friday night lights. Mm-hmm. A couple of favorite Mad Men episodes, a couple of favorite Breaking Bad episodes. We did that the podcast about that a little while ago. But I don't really frequently, I don't really like want to, if I'm going to watch an hour-long drama, I usually want to be something new. Mm-hmm. Um, which is strange because I think that when those dramas came out, 
we like we're like, well, here's the antidote to the disposable sitcom. Here's an antidote to the corporate network machinations that we've this brain, you know, candy that we've been watching for 30 years. Now we have real art. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the brain candy actually had a pretty good format. Yeah, that that was a really and and that you can actually, as we've seen with people watching Friends and watching Seinfeld. And, you know, watching these shows over and over again or going back to How I Met Your Mother or going back through Modern Family or whatever, those shows are easy to live with, you know, and they're mm-hmm. easy to to have on in your life. And Atlanta sort of splits the difference. It has the um, the artistry of, of one of those hour-long dramas with the digestibility of one of those sitcoms. Yeah. And it has the bits and it has jokes that you want to return to. And it has those moments where you're like, oh yeah, this is the episode where this happens. Mm-hmm. But it also has those wallop moments, those bang, like those those mic drop moments mm-hmm. that elevate it maybe to the world of of art, you know? Yeah, I think that the, the secret sauce here in, in TV making, which is obviously there's, there's a ton of it and everyone's looking for the formula. Everyone's trying to um, jump out of orbit. Everyone's trying to break free of gravity basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, when we used to talk about Mad Men, we would talk about one of the things that kept it working and humming was that it was also a workplace comedy, low-key, sure. yeah. in addition to it. The, the, the thing you say about, about sitcoms, you know, the, the formula works. People want it. And there are very few shows as nimble as Atlanta that can lay back in the cut and become a character-based sitcom when it wants to, that can take a detour into um, – Dramatics, but that can also just live in this in-between sort of emotional place that feels so rich. And I wonder also if one of the reasons why this season, which so far, I mean, we haven't even seen Van yet. So far, it's just been tracking pretty closely to the Urn and Paperboy story. And I think we read in the early press that when they came back and they wrote the season, they surprised even themselves by um, having it be a little more conventional, mm-hmm. which I sort of disagree with, but I guess in terms of how they're plotting it, more conventional. Sure. So far, there hasn't been a um, BA, you know, the black, uh, the BA, whatever. The they black haven't done like a wild episode. formal digression from what a typical television show would But because like. they yeah. did that the first season, right. we are constantly on guard knowing Being traditional is progressive now, yeah. It, it's like, but but we know that they could. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's like a pitcher coming into the first inning and being like Ricky Vaughn on the mound and then suddenly becoming Cliff Lee. Well, it's in the, the reverse inning. of what they tell you to do. They say like learn your lines so you can improvise. They improvise now they're sort of learning their lines, you know, and yeah. I, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean the thing that that second episode really does Sport well. Sport and Waves it's called. Sport and Waves. What what it really did well is uh Brian T- Tyree Henry does such a good job yes. projecting the indignities yes. of uh, being a musician, but being an artist, but being specifically yes. a musician and specifically a musician in 2017 or 18. And um you and I have been around music for for almost twenty years now. Uh, the music industry, to some mm-hmm. extent, like we've been to listening sessions and we've seen vans that were wrapped with artists' faces driving around New York City. And you and I were briefly signed to Touch and Go Records. Th- that's right. In that's the late nineties. Right. Um, but there does seem to be, because of digital technology, a heightened level of absurdity to some of it. And I think that that's captured really well when the guy's asking him to do drops for the play, like the playlist or whatever. And he's just like, that's right, but just do it more tough, you know? And he just does it the same exact way over and over again. Um, this kind of gets to some stuff that Julian Casablancas was talking about in this interview. So if you haven't gotten a chance to read it, it's on Vulture. We'll put it in the show notes. But it's a pretty funny interview. Now, most people are dunking on Casablancas because he seems to misunderstand the popularity of David Bowie, who was like one of the most famous people alive. And he was like that obscure. He was really obscure in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and 
There's some and, other and Jimi Hendrix and Jimi Hendrix, which David amazingly like. Just like, it's like I, he closed Woodstock. I, yeah, right. He's like nobody appreciated Jimi Hendrix when he was alive, and David's like he closed Woodstock. It's just a great, it's a great uh, heat check. Um, but there is some stuff in there that he talks about, which is about the idea that um, money and specifically major corporations' interest in maximizing profit margins has started to affect not only the political world, which we were all probably to varying degrees aware of, but very much so the artistic, the, the, the popular culture world. Now, for some people, it's like no duh, but there is a way in which he talked about it. And you could say it's sour grapes because he you used to be the man. And now you want to be the man. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's also a little bit of like melancholy, I think, to it, where I think he thinks there should be a way for the best work to rise to the top and that in the seventies and in, in, and in the sixties, even, you know, like that, that there was still, you could still listen to the best music on the radio. Now he then sort of goes back against his own point by saying David Bowie wasn't appreciated. The velvet underground weren't appreciated. Uh, Jimi Hendrix wasn't appreciated, but he's getting at this idea of like, when you're dealing with someplace like an Apple music, like a Spotify, mm-hmm. both services that you and I use and love, like, you're also talking about corporations whose primary interest is not art- artistic happy. Like, I mean, it's, it's always been thus, the way, right? Okay, I mean, but I, do you think that there is a decided difference between some place like RCA Records, yeah. and a digital yes. and a digital technology corporation? I, I think that's a fair point. I don't think he's the correct vehicle to be making this point. You know, I I, I think that um, he undercuts every argument he makes when he suggests that Ariel Pink should be more popular than Ed Sheeran. It's <laughs> just like, nope. <laughs> Not a big fan of either, but let me let me just stop you right there. That is uh, Ariel Pink is not the David Bowie of right. of his generation or our generation. Full stop. Um, I, I think you, there is something there, which is to say that Spotify is about to go public, you know, and has made that intention clear. And Spotify, um, while they have you know there are many smart people working there and people who are passionate about music, the bottom line of the corporation is to maximize return value for and the like you said, that has always been the bottom line of the music industry. You can go back but to the night to people getting screwed out of their royalties what, as soon as they had royalties. What's weird, I mean, it just it's a very, very it, it, his whole argument, you know, from what from when he's like, I got really into politics, you know, so I'm really yes. learning a lot about politics. It really sounds like I just, you know, the guy with the socialism flyer on the main green stopped me. He sounds and I had, like an and I had, older version of Timothy Chalamet, lady, and I had coffee. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's like one one senior seminar away from like really fully articulating what he's saying. And he keeps saying, I don't really know how to communicate this, which is, but is with the, with the confidence of a 38 year old white rock star. Right. Communicates. It. Right. I think his um, point is that now more than ever, the people with the money get to decide what happens and get to decide. Yeah. They get to decide well, what the poli- who the politicians are, who are going to run for office well, that's or who true. wins. There's too much money. And that they would get that. And that they also decide what we hear. But what he's what he starts by saying is that he had hoped there would be a great democratization that because because Spotify gave you access to everything. Yes. That the undiscovered things would no longer just, be. Un- we would all listen to the Stooges. Undiscovered. Yeah. Right. But. A lot of people are listening to the Stooges, and it's fundamentally true that you can discover things much more quickly now. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, but it was never going to be that something that is intentionally made to challenge you is going to be as popular as the thing that is made to please you. That's just in every avenue of culture or food or life, that's always going to be the case. There also seems to be, uh, in his words, a little bit of nostalgia for an era that he didn't really get to be a part of either. I mean, one thing that's misunderstood often about the Strokes, I think, um, they didn't they wanted to be kind of guided by voices. 
uh-huh. wanted to be a 90s rock act, even though they were playing with 80s, 70s and 80s poses. Yeah. And I think what he's kind of saying on some level is that he wishes everyone wasn't so complicit, but he's not personally angry at people because that's the system. And it is worth noting that indie acts and major label acts all do Spotify sessions. They all go on Zane Lowe for Apple. Yeah. There is no one that I can tell who raises a middle finger and does uh, Sid Vicious or even Steve Albini in the face of what the industry is. Everyone plays along. And so we see Paperboy doing it too, yeah. but we get to see his face while he does it. And I'm I'm very interested that you're putting these two things together. I think there's, I, I wasn't fully integrating them into my mind, but there really is something there. Um, well, it's the same thing that the Cat Williams character says in the first episode about, you know, and earns like, you know, everybody's, you, you gotta lose the chip on your shoulder. You know what I mean? And that idea that, you may see the game for what it is, but are you going to play it or not? And this idea, I, I think that Julian Casablancas has hit a point where people aren't necessarily eating out of the palm of his hand anymore. He may be, I'm sure he's very well off and he doesn't have to worry about anything as he was probably when he was entering the strokes. Yeah. But it does seem like that kind of tension around what, how much of a dog and pony show does this have to become to do the simplest thing? Is it is it is an interesting tension? There's also and there are people who will accept that as part of as a tax mm-hmm. on doing what they want to do, and there are people who rebel against it. I also think that for all of the transparency we have now with celebrity lives and the process of things, how sausages get made, we don't really get much insight, or where we don't choose to investigate how nonlinear an artistic life or career or journey actually is. Yeah. And that goes back to what um, Brian Tyree Henry's face does so well mm-hmm. um, and what Atlanta does so well. He is the MVP of the show, by the way, I think. His performance, what he can do with his face, just the deep bone-level existential disgust and despair. But also the fact that the show, I mean, how, 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 how much more successful is he than when we met him in the premiere? And I think the answer is none, negligibly. So yeah, and, I get and, the and, impression and, and, that it's like uh, his fame out outpaced his output, his output, or at least his the 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 one song has now like become so much of a signature yeah, that he's but, trying to catch up to it. But that's also he also still has to have his life, right. and and I I love that Atlanta exists in the um, potholes between events mm-hmm. in people's lives, and there's a way to read the Julian Casablanca story as you know pampered aging rock star runs off at the mouth too much about things he's not well informed on or you know not understanding what people want from him but there's also a version of it where like it's been 17 years since the first strokes record came out it's been 10 years since they released a record that people were like that it felt culturally like people are excited about or you know are they going to make it Mm -hmm. they're not that that they're not going to be the biggest band in the world i mean i think we knew that in 2003 but now we know it too but for a lot of people, they don't think about, we don't, I mean, this is, we're all guilty of this. We don't think about people that we like or admire or artists that we are excited about in the fallow period between their output when they re-enter our lives. No. And that's when they're actually doing their lives. And that's when they are developing their maybe not super complicated theories about, um, <laughs> how, how, money, about yeah. how money is ruined politics, you know? Yeah. And so in a weird way, we are peeking underneath the hood in both of these pieces in a way that isn't. It, frankly, isn't that flattering to anybody? You know, the, yeah. the, the, the system, the star, what have you. Um, I really love the fact that Atlanta has real emotional stakes and that it is really grounded in a place of disappointment 
yeah. in despair. And for as funny as this episode is, when uh, they realize without saying it that they're not going to work in this world, it's not going to happen for them, when Earn loses the money <laughs> the way that he loses it, yeah. I mean, it's hilarious, but also that matters. And it's so much easier to, when you're covering a rock star or making a TV show, I think, to steer your story towards the zeniths, to, to, towards the maximalist moments, right? I mean, that's sort of the way more traditional TV has always been built. It's the way movies are built. It's for the it's, it's for either the highest highs or the lowest lows. But Atlanta succeeds by just living on a Tuesday. It's just Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. And they did this, and now what? That's, like, that's the power of the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, then we'll come back and talk about the first episode of Collateral. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hulu's new series, The Looming Tower, based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Lawrence Wright. This limited series traces the rising threat of Osama bin Laden and how the rivalry between the FBI and CIA may have set a path for the tragedy of 9-11. Starring Emmy winner Jeff Daniels, Golden Globe nominee Peter Sarsgaard, and Tahar Rahim as Ali Soufan, The Looming Tower is available now only on Hulu. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Fun fact, unlike flights or other travel, hotel rates actually get cheaper at the last minute. In fact, Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get amazing deals. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe to book a room. No long, endless lists of a zillion hotel choices. Hotel Tonight only shows you the best deals at the best hotels. It's perfect for if you're busy or if you don't want to overthink things. Plus, you can book up to 100 days in advance at top destinations and up to a week in advance everywhere else. Book next week tonight, book next month tonight. It's great for last minute getaways or a quick staycation, whether you're a planner or like to leave things to the very last minute. And with Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better the deals get. So start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Andy, we're back. We're going to talk about the first episode of the Netflix show Collateral, uh, David Hare's four-part crime drama starring Carrie Mulligan. And there's a lot of different ways we can approach this. There's, I, I, you know, we can talk about like our favorite performances in the first episode. We can talk a little bit about the plot if you'd like to. But there's one thing I wanted to bring up initially mm-hmm. with you, and um, I know that some people like ding David Hare here and there for feeling like he's a little bit. Um, on his on his box at Hyde Park, you know, shouting. I at remember people. those guys. I saw those guys. But there's one thing I wanted to discuss because I think that you and I often respond to the same thing in 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 TV that we like, and it's basically like this this specific thing is you know good dialogue, and sometimes we deviate, sometimes we don't. But there is a difference between good dialogue and realistic dialogue. Mm-hmm. And this has always been kind of a fascination of mine because. The, the two terms can be interchangeable sometimes when you're reading criticism of television. It's like very realistic dialogue. But it's, in fact, I don't actually want realistic dialogue. Realistic dialogue. If you want realistic dialogue, homie, listen to a podcast. Well, yeah, but actually in the sense, you and I are are doing a performance of our friendship on this podcast. And it is. What? Well, no, but it is not like what? how we actually talk. I'm heartbroken. <laughs> this is the first time we've spoken since the last time we were at microphones. <laughs> Any it's, other hard truths you want to drop on me? It's not how we actually talk literally in a room together. We'll that's get true. distracted by something. There's somebody else comes into the room that's unexpected or whatever. You rarely call me by my last name. No, I never Except on this podcast. That's true. That's kind of a thing we do here. But that the same thing goes for television. If you wanted to watch a realistic rendering of some of the events that you see in Collateral, I don't think it would be nearly as exhilarating. In fact, it would be 
utterly depressing and then boring. Mm-hmm. But what David Hare does really well is he knows that what he wants to do is have his action is going to be people talking. And this is similar to what Sorkin does. This is similar to what a lot of great writers do, Paddy Chayefsky. It's, it's having two people, three people in a room talking. What's happening in that room? What's the what's the emotional stakes? What is the uh, c- cause and effect that brings them into this room that's mm-hmm. getting them out of this room? The action is largely verbal. He has a certain energy to his... Uh, to his writing that I really respond to. And even though it is very, very, I wouldn't say stagey, but it is produced. The dialogue between Carrie Mulligan's character, Kip, and her partner throughout the first episode is the rat-a-tat, Love it. you know, classic buddy cop dialogue shot through maybe, you know, British boarding school, but it still has like a 1940s, 1950s mm-hmm. noir kind of vibe to it. That's what I love. I love the idea that someone is using dialogue to create an, a tone for the show where mm-hmm. most people use camera work, lighting, setting, yes. whatever. You can tr- you can create an emotional stakes for a television show with dialogue and you can decide, you know, this is very serious stuff we're talking about. We're talking about a murder. We're talking about uh, immigration, re- refugees. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Brexit. But you can create the tone of the show with how people talk. And you can sit, tell us a lot about these people's worldviews by how they talk. I was wondering if you responded to that at all in, in, in the show as well. I love that you say that because what this show has that grabbed me right away is it has energy and it has intention. And I think that's crucial to making something that is entertaining. Um, energy is right there. I mean, the direction by S.J. Clarkson is really good. The show is as much about London as it is about anything else. Yeah. And so it feels like there's an urban hum to the show that I really appreciate. It also helps inform the viewer that you know there are only four hours. There's only four hours of the show, so it's going to keep moving. I, it's just like the smile on your face I, it about makes that. me so happy. Um, and, and also that speaks to the intention here that that David Hare had something he wanted to say, he had issues he wanted to play with. So he he grabbed an appropriate sized canvas for himself mm-hmm. to do it, and he went after it. And so this idea of realism is really a much more complicated and problematic issue to bring up with things because what do we want out of art, but also what did the artist want to do? Um, Law & Order is an incredibly entertaining and efficient show that makes an absolute mockery of police work and legal work. Sure. But everyone's fine with that. However, a show like The Wire is specifically about bureaucracy process and frustration. Yeah, boredom, uh, you know, the system's grinding you down. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what the show is about. And so... When we watch this, and I, you know, already I can tell, um, and this is a part of, this is a little voice in my head that I just quieted while I was watching it because I was enjoying it so much. Like, oh, that's convenient. That oh, you know, the, I would say that Collateral is to the wire what Ozark is to Breaking Bad. Fair, fair. That's like, fair. The MP that is, you know, talking about immigration is also involved with the woman who witnessed the murder. Who, you know what I mean? Who's like, in a, who is, has in a lesbian relationship with a priest. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all... If you say it out loud, it's it, but the point is that he chose the canvas that he wanted. He chose the characters that could be stand-ins for the issues that he wanted. And then he imbued them with energy, intention, purpose, and enough character to make it believable. And then they're telling the story. And so it works. It's, it's funny. I think that we, in general, this goes all the way back to the thing I was saying at the beginning about what we are expecting from greatness in TV, what we're looking for right now. Let's. Th- this is a modest show in a lot of ways. Yeah, this but is a celebration of the double to left. But, yeah. the, but this is, it is successful in it. And in that way, I find it superior to a lot of the bigger swings that we've been considering and dismissing so far in calendar yes. year 2018. Um, well, I mean, moves. what do you think that that's about? Do you think that that's about the influx of 
Well, you, you've talked about the thinning talent pool, but you mm-hmm. could also make the argument that there's this influx of bigger names coming in, so the stakes inevitably have to be high mm-hmm. for a Reese Witherspoon drama on HBO or a, yep. uh, a show from Jonah Nolan about cowboys and robots. You know, like yeah. that, that, that the stakes have to be not, not – I'm just picking two shows at random. It has nothing to do with them being on HBO, but it's like that idea that if you're going to do this, it's almost like what happened with movies as they moved into the blockbuster period out of the new Hollywood period where it's like, look, if we're going to invest in Bruce Willis jumping out of a skyscraper, the skyscraper has to blow up at some point. You I, know? I think that's exactly right. We used to talk about how the British model was interesting or noteworthy or superior to the American model because they did fewer episodes and they could be more focused with right. their storytelling. That was clearly absorbed fully uh, into the American television bloodstream thanks to the, the streaming services. What I'm looking at now is a difference between American TV as it's currently being commissioned and made and a show like Collateral is that Collateral appears to have been an issue and a story that, that David Hare wanted to tell about yeah. a subject. He had a story. Um, he had themes he wanted to tackle and he built it um, he he built it l- like Legos from yeah. there, from a foundation. Yeah. I think much of the shows that we're talking about are were being considered for this year and going forward are built not in that way. They're yeah. built top down. You get Reese Witherspoon, you get Nicole Kidman who want to work together. Let's find um, a piece of IP, as they say, or a book that might work. Okay, let's fold that in. Let's get a director. Let's have, and then it's sort of, and then once we've got all those pieces, well, then we'll pay either one writer or maybe a lot of writers that we don't even know about being credited to find a reason to make this show. Well, there's Reverse also... Reverse engineer a theme into this material, yes. which is really just about being in business with these bigger names. Right, and I think that a lot of... I can't speak to the motivations of any different actor, but there was something about this Carrie Mulligan performance, and I actually want to have Amanda come on Thursday because she and I have been talking a lot about our, you know... We've got a lot of time for Carrie Mulligan. We always have as an actress, but she is she's showing something here that I don't think she's gotten a show before, which is the uh, space to just have like a pretty normal character. Uh, Kip is such a refreshing cop. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been kind of going through these years of True Detective Two style characters who all have this mortal emotional wound that they're carrying around. Mm this trauma that and, they're trying to get over. And then they punish themselves and that, or others. And that, yeah, exactly. And that their their police work is in somehow, it's like a penance for some, mm-hmm. you know, sin that they've committed or has been committed unto them. And so far, at least through one episode, this is just a driven woman who is sort of looking for justice, but has also just happened to find something that she's very good at. Yeah, when we see a no-nonsense uh, British police detective, the easiest comp is for Jane Tennyson from Prime Suspect, yes. the Helen Mirren part. But the so far through one, a more natural comp for me, weirdly, is um, is Marge Gunderson from Fargo. Yeah. That's uh, a great that's a great comp. Not just because they're both pregnant, which is interesting and noteworthy and adds to the character, um, but because she's doing her job. Now she is not this is not a Coen Brothers universe, so there is not that strange sense of whimsy and menace. We're not. There is no commentary on regional niceness or peculiarities so far. Um, but she's good at her job. There's a, and, and that also is steered towards Carrie Mulligan being cast in this because mm-hmm. she is a very warm presence. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see her, you sort of her, her the way her, her face is open, and you you like her on screen, which is a huge attribute for any actor. 
Now, she's a police detective, so she's a little more no-nonsense, but she plays off of it. She knows people will talk to her. Yeah. When they, she gets the call in the middle of the night and she's in bed sleeping with her husband, there's a little bit of a smile when she says, I'm going to work. Yeah. Because she likes going she to work. She does like it. She likes and, this job. Yeah. And I think that I think you're right, especially in a show, again, four hours, people, in a show that is as <laughs> limited as this, there's not going to be room or time to be like, I don't think, about her tortured backstory. Yeah. So let's just have her be an active engine to get us through the story, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with giving us that to play with. It's, it's for the, for her to play with and for us to watch and enjoy. So we could talk a little bit more deeply about the plot on Thursday when we kind of get a little bit further into this season. Is there any other non-Carrie Mulligan yeah. performance you wanted to shout out? Um, I want to particularly shout out Haley Squires, who plays Lori, the uh, ill-fated pizza manager, one of the first people we see in the show. Um, she, I haven't spent as much time in London recently as you, yeah. but she seems like a very plausible <laughs> resident Pizza of that lady? fine city. Yeah. Now, I also like, I just like her performance. I, I like the energy that she brings to the show. I also want to say that I think she has a very thankless job because this show, I don't know about its verisimilitude on any number of fronts about how Labor Party is functioning in a post-Brexit era, um, about how the Syrian refugee crisis is playing out on the streets of uh the capital city. But from what I believe to be true, its depiction of the hideousness of English pizza is dead on. But that is a popular pizza joint. Pizza is popular yeah. everywhere in well, the you world. What's bigger now, I think, is burgers in, in, in London. Look, burger- at least in like, it's like the, the gourmet burger is pretty popular. I think. I think pizza is is obviously like a staple of the to-go thing. Nothing but. speaks worse about about uh, American empire or the decline of American cultural empire than the proliferation of the fancy burger place. So wait, do you not – is it the proliferation of prolifer- – proliferation of fancy burgers or is it just the pro- I, proliferation I just of had, burgers? I went – Boy, I really struggled with that. A couple years ago – maybe this is a better story for House of Carbs, but a couple years ago <laughs> – You can bless me with it. I went to a mind. friend's <laughs> wedding in, uh, in France. Okay. So it's in France with the family. Did I tell the story on this podcast? I don't, I, who knows? <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, edit it if I did. And uh, the first night we got there, everyone's a little jet lagged. Wife and daughter go to sleep. Uh, I'm wandering the streets. You know, it stays late, late a little bit later. Paris. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, oh my God, I'm in Paris. How incredible. Walking around, beautiful old buildings. Mimes with berets, probably. I don't mm-hmm. remember. And then from a distance across like a beautiful park, as the sun's setting, I see a crowd of people. I'm like, okay, I wonder what's going on over uh-huh. here. I approach and I see like a, like a wood a wood front of this building and people gathered around. I'm like, this is a restaurant. I'm like, this is the spot. The bistronomy movement is happening in Paris and I'm going to discover this. I'm going to walk in and I get closer. I'm like, there's something on every table. This must be the must order. Is it, is it, is it wine? What, what is this on everyone's table? This red bottle. If it was wine on every table, you would have just found a bar. Well, which I also <laughs> would love to experience because I was jet lagged and, and thirsty. Um, it was Heinz ketchup because this place was a burger place. It was mobbed. Wow. And the aesthetic was pure Brooklyn. It was just like exposed wood and, uh, you know, like those old uh, light bulb light fixtures with a little like hissing kind of- And you were like, no! But I was like, this doesn't exist in Brooklyn. But in Paris, everyone's lining up for this faux Brooklyn aesthetic. So look, I don't even know what we're, why we're even telling the story. Uh, but I think it was just eat- about pizza and the popularity of, of different foods. But that pizza looks super bad, right? Like they were just thrown in yeah. frozen pizzas. Yeah, also, yeah. Uh, to bring it back to collateral, which we probably should, when Billy Piper receives the pizza from the doomed pizza delivery guy yeah. and then hurls it across the room in disgust, I was like, st- I, I stood up and applauded. Like, that is exactly <laughs> what you should do yeah. when someone hands you that pizza. I that know, sh- something tells me that the, the pizza is a little bit of a, 
MacGuffin in this in this whole situation. What? Yeah, I don't know. You don't uh, think the pizza was that important? <laughs> uh, we'll do, be talking do, about episode two on Thursday. Do you? Last thing, this sh- for the first episode reveals who pulled the trigger without revealing I anything think so, ab- yeah. about that person. Yeah, I mean, there would be. I guess a twist would be why was this person wearing a diving suit otherwise? But how do you feel about that gambit? Uh, with the possibility of it being a twist or her. Of, of a, well, it's an aggressive play and a mystery, not to leave the trigger person um, a mystery, but basically I, to introduce us to someone who we don't know, so we don't know why. I, I think I think the why is going to become a bigger uh, a bigger deal than the the who. I mean, Jeannie Spark plays Sandrine Shaw. That's the the person who gets gets into like does a full outfit change in the bus station. Do people transition. wear a lot of diving suits in London these days? I now will be disturbed if I see it. I think that athletic gear, athleisure yeah. wear, yeah. is getting pretty close to scuba wear. Wow, you mean in terms of its breathability underwater? Well, or? it's it's tightness. I mean, people. I think I think it's it, people are out there wearing like the guy who manages Liverpool basically is wearing tights. I'm pretty into our hard turn into just being a podcast with the old guys complaining about international food. I like it. I wish I could athletes. wear it. I'm not, I'm just saying I don't know. Enough, I haven't have the figure for it anymore. You, if I ever did, it's too tight for you. I don't think that I could come into work <laughs> as Jurgen Klopp does and be wearing. Tight black athleisure pants, black sneakers, and a and a and like a windbreaker. My bigger question is, but you want to? Yeah, definitely. Why? Also, that dude has a full head of fake hair, and he's like open about. It. He's like, I just like I got rich and I got hair transplants, dog. Wow. Yeah. So he's just like he has a certain degree of like he knows where he wants to be and uh-huh. he knows how to get there. Listen, <laughs> I think you're doing great. You are doing a podcast sitting in front of a picture of yourself. <laughs> I don't think it gets any better. No, you're right. I've peaked. Um, Thursday, we'll talk about episode two, and maybe Amanda will come join us, and we'll have some other goodies for you. Until then. Hey, uh, Last Good Kiss by James Crumley. That's the book. Get and reading it for the yeah. book club. So that, that's it for us today. We'll talk to you on Thursday. I'd like to see you in those clothes. I think that would work for you. Zach, that, thanks for riding with us. Baranski. <laughs> It's probably probably not Zach's favorite pod ever. (laughs) Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hulu's new original, The Looming Tower, based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Lawrence Wright. This limited series traces the rising threat of Osama bin Laden and how the rivalry between the FBI and the CIA may have set a path for the tragedy of 9-11. The Looming Tower is available now only on Hulu.